WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. Criminalizing some bystanders to police action. A blow-up by a former Democratic Senate candidate, plus iGaming goes nowhere this session, and more. From the television studios at WFYI, it's Indiana Week in Review for the week ending March 10th, 2023. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations. This week, Indiana lawmakers want to criminalize bystanders who get within 25 feet of police after being told to stop. Proposed legislation passed out of a Senate committee Tuesday. The bill's proponents say it's about helping keep law enforcement and the public safe by stopping people from interfering with police while they're doing their job. Jordan Buckley is a Howard County deputy sheriff. A police officer needs to be able to focus on the person or persons they are dealing with and not the distractions. Police insist the bill is about helping them control people who are being antagonistic. But that's not what the bill actually says. It creates a crime for a person who encroaches on a 25-foot bubble after being told to stop while an officer is engaged in their duties. Jason Riley is with Young Americans for Liberty. This bill just simply hinders the ability of bystanders to film, um, and it can hurt the ability of potential witnesses to police misconduct. The bill passed the committee along party lines. Is this a worthy idea that's hard to legislate? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney. Republican Mike O'Brien. John Schwannis, host of Indiana Lawmakers. And Nikki Kelly, editor-in-chief of the Indiana Capitol Chronicle. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting Statehouse Bureau Chief Brandon Smith. Mike, is this bill simply written too broad? It's hard to write it narrowly, right? Because what you're dealing with is, is that, a, is that a police action or isn't it? Is that a duty of a police officer or not? Okay, so now we're, now we're trying to tailor the bill. Okay, now we've got to define duty, right? And here's all the things that are, that are a police officer's duty. And we talked in other cases, House Bill 1407 a couple of weeks ago on judicial discretion. What officers need is flexibility and discretion when they're, when they're trying to de-escalate a situation. And, of course, you know, Senator Taylor brought up George Floyd and, and that you know, the killing of George Floyd, um, as the extreme example, that's not what we're trying to legislate here. These officers, by and large, are in a situation they're trying to figure out and de-escalate and, and deal with the person that, that, that they're trying to deal with. So to say that you can, be, you can film me, you have that right, you can do whatever you want, but you got to be over there when you do it. What we don't need in the George Floyd situation or any other situation is bystanders and other people getting involved. That's not a better outcome. So that's what they're trying to do is just, and the, the, the sheriff testified to this in, in his testimony, they're being asked to figure a lot out on the street in the moment, you know, and having other people involved because they just, they're involved for political reasons or in, just trying to interfere is what they don't need. Or trying to get to a loved one that's down on the ground. Well, you know, Mike, Mike Young, we'll see, we'll see if there are changes that's the, the discretion bill. part, right? Right. But, but that's, I think, where you, figure but out. that I think is where you get into trouble is discretion yeah. because discretion can always be misused. It, um, you know, he, well, I agree. I agree that the George the Floyd office, situation. The officers that killed George Floyd, that's not a better outcome if other people are getting involved. No, that's true. But how do you, you know, he talked about what is the duties of the police officer. One of the things that was brought up in the committee is, <clears throat> I think some, it was one of the senators asked, you know, is this, are we talking about an officer just walking down the street 
on his patrol? Is that the is that the situation? No, it was it was part of an investigation. You're arresting someone, something like that. But that's not the way the bill is written. I mean, I could argue that an officer walking the beat is part of his duties, and now he has a permanent 25-foot bubble if he wants to enforce it? Like, is that going to be, is that the trick of writing this bill? Which is why we don't need this bill, okay? I agree that the officers need to be in control, but they already can be. They can say, here, you cannot interfere. I'm in the process of making an arrest, and if you interfere, you're going to be arrested. They can do that right now. It doesn't have to have a measuring tape to say how far out they have to be. They have that ability and they have that discretion to say to the, to the spouse of the person lying on the ground, you can go, but you can't. They can already do that. So I, I don't even understand. I mean, this is a bill that strikes me as well-intentioned but not well thought out. This was brought up too, which is um, folks like the ACLU, or, or not the ACLU, excuse me, the, um, uh, the, prosecu- uh, the, the Public Defenders Council brought up that there is existing law about interfering with, a, with, with yeah, an emergency a- officer. And they, they say, well, it was really written for firefighters, but it could it, be applied it, to police, it, could it, it can, not? And it absolutely has been applied right. to police. And, and I also think there's a big difference between, and look, I'm going to admit something here, I watch on patrol live every Friday and Saturday <laughs> night. And there are often true these kinds of incidents where people are kind of on top of the police. But there's a difference between actively interfering with the police and standing five feet away and holding a camera and recording just to make sure every, everyone's accountable. Right. But it stops that part too. And I think that's the concern that people have. And, and, and you know, uh, the young... <laughs> Uh, ACLU's Katie Blair this this session has testified um, alongside uh, Jim Lucas, Americans for, for Prosperity, Prosperity, and Young Americans <laughs> for Liberty, which I is, not, which is what I imagine uh, on, on a couple of different bills, which is not how I imagined her session going. But um, uh, Young Americans for Liberty brought up the example of a room, 10 by 10 foot room, that police officers are now, they're trying to arrest someone, something like that. They can order a person out of the room shielding their actions entirely from any other member of the public. That's also part of the problem here is 25 feet. Oh, well, 25 feet away is not that far. I can still record. Yeah, maybe is the answer to that, right? Sure. There are a lot of those kinds of things. What if you're on a busy thoroughfare and something is taking place on the sidewalk and you say, I want you out. Well, the only place to go, officer, is in the middle of this oncoming traffic. Now, nobody's going to demand that, I would hope, but those possibilities exist. It seems to me uh, that there are practical considerations, and you just touched on them. How is this going to be enforced? And if it is enforced, how can it be abused and misused? And there seems to be ample opportunity for that. Then there, aside from the practical considerations, it seems to me there is a sad philosophical uh, discussion to be had here that we even have to have this conversation. You know, there was a time when, I'm, I'm old enough to remember officer-friendly programs, you know, and the, it was all about the police they're not untouchables. They're not some robots. They're people. They breathe. They eat. They're dads. They're, they're moms. They have kids in your school, maybe. And in fact, I thought with community, community policing, where the cops are not some uh, stranger behind a you know face shield, but actually people you can count on and ask questions about and take into your confidence. And I know that sounds Pollyanna. Okay, everybody's moaning and groaning. But I mean, if if you if you adopt this philosophy, it essentially it's like some dystopian Arnold Schwarzenegger movie where, you know, the cops are sort of these untouchable figures that that hover above everyone else. And I think philosophically, again, that's a bit of a stretch, but that's why we talk about these things. It just seems unfortunate that law enforcement essentially has to have that bubble around it. 
All right, well, in a, in a story that seems made for a show like this, Hammond Mayer and former Democratic U.S. Senate candidate Tom McDermott had harsh words for national Democrats and dire predictions for Democrats' chances in Indiana statewide elections this week. It started when former White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain, a native Hoosier, tweeted a call to Indiana Democrats to find great candidates to run for U.S. Senate. That seemed to hit a nerve for McDermott, the Indiana Democratic Party's most recent Senate candidate. He called Klain a jagoff and said neither he nor national Democrats helped McDermott's campaign at all last year. The Times of Northwest Indiana reported that two days later, McDermott went on the radio in Hammond and said Democrats will never win statewide until their candidates are more moderate, in the mold, McDermott said, of former Senators Joe Donnelly and Evan Bayh. And Delaney, Joe Donnelly and Evan Bayh both lost their last elections in this state. Is that a winning formula? Is Tom well, I think right? it's still a winning formula because the Republicans have gone so far to the right. I mean, they're, 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 some of the philosophy they share now and some of the ideas they share are so crazy that I think there's a lot of room in the middle for a moderate that wants to be with a bipartisan approach. But, you know, to be fair about this, an, an election with an open seat is a whole different ballgame from an election with a, with a incumbent, with all the resources an incumbent has. So it's a completely different ball of wax. And, and again, Banks is part of the mega Trump uh, faction of the Republican Party. And I don't think that's even a majority of the Republicans. It's probably a majority of the Republicans in this state that vote in primaries, but not a majority of the people. And I think there is room in the middle there for people who want to, to govern who aren't out there to pick on people and to degrade people and to f f come up with conspiracies like Banks has, that, uh, that uh, Joe Biden didn't win the election and any abortion is wrong and on and on and on and on. There's a lot of room in the middle for a good candidate. And shame on the national Democrats if they don't support that good candidate. I want to talk about McDermott's comments here because I think, obviously, he knows. Me too. <laughs> I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. Well, let me ask this question, though, to you. To, to sort of start this, which is I think there's a really worthwhile discussion that I think the Democratic Party in the state needs to have based on these comments about what does the future of our party look like in the state of Indiana in terms of the candidates we're putting up for statewide office. But he also, in true Tom McDermott fashion, said, you know, things like calling Ron Klain a jagoff. So <laughs> does, it, does it risk diluting the message, which I think is important, with it just he kind of sounds like a sore loser. Ann likes to say a lot that you know Jim Banks is a trumper. If you really wanted to figure out to see what it was like to put Donald Trump in the U.S. Senate, you should have elected Tom McDermott because the style is the same. The, <laughs> the ideas, the ideas, the, 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 the ideas are a little different. The style, little different, little different ideas. The, but the, the reactionary is, nature yeah. of leadership works in Hammond. So, so. It's worked great in Hammond for two decades, and it'll continue working great in Hammond for as long as Tom wants to wants to do it. Um, it's not, it's, where we're, and we've talked about, we've talked about this after the, after the November election. Where we are at as a country, and this matters because it determines how national groups and organized political parties show their support and invest in candidates. Imagine what Ann just said about a lot of room in the middle. That's like saying in Illinois, when are we going to elect a Republican? Or, when are we going to elect a moderate Democrat? You're not. You're just not. The, the, Ideological math isn't there. The tribalism of modern politics isn't there. That can all change, but it's generational change. And what we've seen and where we're at right now is in Indiana is we've gone from a generation of moderate Democrats to a new generation of right-wing Republicans. 
and populists. These aren't people that are interested. I mean, well, I'm not sure they're populist. They're right wing. Oh, they're po no, they're they're po I mean, well. they're popular. I mean, look at the Norfolk Southern situation that we've seen play out in the last in the last week. We have Republicans attacking Democrats and Democrats trying to defend the actions of a of a private company that polluted. <laughs> right? The politics are completely flipped. So what all that means to back to Tom back to Tom McDermott is unless you can demonstrate that you are going to be competitive you are not going to have people invest in you. You're not going to have national groups That's invest right. in you. That's and and the political math of the United States Senate right now is in a few is matters in a few places. And to that may matter. Here. So let's it may matter here. Yeah, but let's look ahead to 2024, it. where Democrats have not a dissimilar map from what Republicans had in 2022, which was they're defending a lot of places, and some of them are, I mean, purple at best. So. To that end, would you expect Democrats, national Democrats, to spend big on Indiana's U.S. Senate race? But it, I think, there, oh, just wait. one thing, though. They don't have to spend that big on Indiana. It, it's not like a New York that's or California true. You, you can, race. You can, you you can, can get a lot farther with less a money. Lot that's true. Less money. But do you expect them to, to invest in Indiana? I think they'll invest, but you can't just, when, it's, when there's still a wild card, it's like a game show where you're looking at uh, the door is a big question mark and like, do you want to... Price is right. Do you want to invest all your money in that? It could be a whatever the the a the, goat. The goat, yeah. It could be the goofy prize or whatever, you know, the or it could be good. So I think a lot of people are take a wait and see approach to see if it is somebody who's viable. As far as as where somebody should be on the spectrum, I think Hoosiers and most Americans appreciate governance in the middle. Practical, efficient government. The problem is that what works in terms of governance isn't what is always most sellable. Uh, in terms of campaigns, where, by definition, you have to have somebody that gets either somebody really honked off or really so enthusiastic about the vision and the ideal that has been painted that you want to do something and get off, the, off your couch and, and, and help this person or give money to this person. So and middle of, of the road doesn't really yeah. inspire that. It, it kind of goes back to Ron Klain's original tweet, which is, it feels like some of this, whether or not national Democrats will spend any money in Indiana, will depend a little on who the candidate is, right? Absolutely. Duh. Yeah. We're still waiting. Well, and, it's I mean, the same list. Yeah, it, it, it's yeah, a short list, and we also have a problem of we got a governor's race at the same time. An open so, governor's race. An open governor's time. race. And so, a presidential. You know, mm -hmm. who, who is going to which side and who would yeah. be better in each races is still a lot to be seen. Well, since Ron Klain is a native Hoosier who grew up in Indianapolis, perhaps he could run. Well, a lot of people suggested that yeah. to him, said, to which he, he said, said no. he's not, that's he's not his role. He might have the ability to raise <laughs> He'd money. like other people to go find a good candidate. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right, time now for viewer feedback. Each week we pose an unscientific online poll question, and this week's question is, is former Democratic Senate candidate Tom McDermott correct that only moderate Democrats can win statewide in Indiana? A, yes, or B, no. Last week, we asked you if the Biden administration is wrong to move toxic waste from the Ohio train derailment to Indiana sites. 48% of you say yes, 52% say no. If you'd like to take part in the poll, go to wfyi.org IWIR and look for the poll. There was a lot of momentum for Indiana to legalize online gambling in the 2023 session, but a bill to do so and allow online lottery went nowhere this session. Indiana legalized online sports gaming in 2019, but table games like poker and blackjack are still only legal at casinos. Representative Ethan Manning's bill would have legalized online table games and online lottery, but he never even brought the measure for a hearing this session. He says he needs to better educate lawmakers and the public on the importance of legalizing iGaming. 
We know that we have a very large black market for iGaming now. It's been shown in other states. Um, and we know that by bringing it into the light, right, we can add consumer protections and do a lot of things with responsible gaming that we're not able to do right now. Manning says the state also needs to determine whether online gambling will hurt brick-and-mortar casino revenues. Industry studies say it won't, but a fiscal analysis of Manning's bill by the state's nonpartisan legislative services agency predicted it would. Nikki Kelly, I can't remember if we talked on the show or not, but a bunch of us wrote stories ahead of the session saying, boy, the momentum to do this is the strongest it's ever been. And this didn't even get a hearing. It didn't get a sniff. Are you surprised at how this went down? I would say I would be I would be surprised if it was another kind of bill. But gaming just works. It kind of works in the shadows. And I don't mean that in any sort of corrupt way. I'm just saying there's so many discussions behind. And, you know, one thing affects, you know, nine other people over here and. And then, you know, if we talk about online gaming, then we bring up this whole discussion about, well, what about letting, you know, legions and private clubs have cherry master machines and things like that. And, and bars so, and taverns and gas absolutely. stations and convenience stores. So it just opens a whole huge, I guess, Pandora's box of what would come next. Yeah, on gaming, you often hear the slip, like you do on so many other issues, you hear the slippery slope argument. Well, if we do this, then soon we're going to do that. But on gaming, it's always been true. We did a little bit, and then we did more, and then we did more, and then we did this, and then we did that. So on that one, is that a a legitimate argument to say, let's not dip our toes into this next area? Well, historically, that has, we can look at the evidence. That has happened, whether you go with table games, whether you go versus, yes, let's stipulate that. So so that's a, a fact. But the other issue here is just how much people have invested, companies have invested in the infrastructure, the brick-and-mortar aspect of this. You know, these are companies that paid, I, I forget how many zeros were behind the word million, but it was lots of hundreds of millions of dollars, A, just for licenses, B, to build these, these facilities in a manner that was in keeping with the, the, the uh, confines and, and the prescription of the law and the statute. And they have other competitive pressures. So when you, if you open this up, what does it do to the people who arguably were there first for you, and there are the people who arguably have pumping, been pumping hundreds of millions of dollars into the state's coffers yeah. through taxation. The, that feels, there's, there's an element to that, that that feels like it's harder, the selling point for online gaming is a little harder here, because when we talked about gaming expansion, there's never even any agreement about what that constitutes, but when we talk about gaming expansion with brick-and-mortar casinos, which, you know, do they have to still go out on the river? Okay, now can they dock permanently? Oh, can they move on to land entirely and forget the whole boat aspect? It's always about, there's an element to it that's always about, this is money that some of which is going to the state, but some of it's going into that local community. These are jobs in that local community. That's not true for online gaming. That's just, we're going to make some money. So that's a really important point, and full disclosure, our, our firm is heavily involved in this um, for the online operators, uh, DraftKings, FanDuel, Fanatics, those kinds of MGM. Um, and that was a huge part of this. So for decades, well, don't, we, we don't have a casino fight in Indiana or legislation very often, and, and part of the, and because they're heavy lifts. Um, and a, lot, and a lot goes into it, and you don't really know until it's your, it's your, both your comments about this was the most organized and strongest push we've had in years. That's, what, that's when everyone starts showing their hand. That's when the VGTs start getting traction. What are we doing about that? Where, where are we putting the money? When you start getting into that part of the conversation, that is because it's getting traction and because there is a big 
push behind it, but to your, but to your comment, one of the big reasons that this doesn't go, didn't go anywhere is we've always had that kind of local component to it. Um, but now you had legislators who were like, oh, I get, so I get a poker table in my pocket. That money's going through, it would, that, that operator is still going through a brick-and-mortar casino, which is why largely the brick-and-mortar casino supported it, because it was also revenue for them and this generation of people that are not going, going to casinos. But if you're, you know, an outstate legislator from that doesn't have a gaming community, you're like, all right, I'm voting for this. What am I? Well, what am I really getting? And that's when that's when the VGTs really started to get more more traction. Okay, well, maybe I put, start putting poker machines in my American Legion. That seems like a good idea to me, right? And there's reasons not to do that. And then the you know, and then the coalitions start falling apart. But it was it was a big push this year. I remember the last major gaming bill, which it legalized. Um, sports gaming, but also allowed the Gary Casino to move on land. It allowed the Terre Haute Casino, the first new land-based casino in uh, more than a decade, I think, in Indiana. When that went through, the author of that bill, Representative Ben Smaltz from the Fort Wayne area-ish, um, who doesn't have a casino up in his neck of the woods, said on the floor of the, th- the floor of the House for final passage of that bill, this is my bill, I'm voting for it, but boy, I really don't like this idea of sports gaming online because... No, he voted it, against it. He, uh, that's right, he did vote against it. That's he, right, Todd he Houston did. was speaker of the chairman of Ways and Means that, that year, and he voted against it. Yeah, and, and, and Ben Smalls <laughs> didn't vote. said about right <laughs> said about his bill, I don't like the idea of there being a casino in every living room in Indiana. Is that why this gaming issue is going to be harder than many, any other we've seen in the history of the state other than getting it original. I think that's part of the reason. I think part of the other reason is that we're flush with cash. Every time we've done this in the past, there's mm-hmm. been some compelling need to raise revenue, and the mm-hmm. Republicans never want to increase taxes. So they, they do it this way. And frankly, I, I thought when we, when we adopted the lottery and we have state-authorized gaming, <laughs> that it was, talk about was the over. camel's nose, <laughs> yeah, right. under the tent, everything after that was... But I, I think the, uh, an, another big difference is nobody's feeling the pressure at the moment yeah. for, for money. Point. The That's incrementalism really is also a reaction to consumer demand. This is, uh, online, yeah. online gaming is it's, it's college-educated women. Young college-educated women are, are, the, are the average demographic. And, that's, and that, as that changes, the legislature has to come in and revisit, how do we do this? Yeah. All right. Indiana faith leaders say Hoosiers need and deserve better mental health crisis response services. And they're calling on lawmakers to fully fund recommendations from the Indiana Behavioral Health Commission. Faith leaders say millions of Hoosiers know someone who was or will be in need of mental health crisis services. For the Reverend Dr. Sarah Griffith Lund, that person was her father. He told her he was planning to die by suicide. She contacted the police because there was no one else to call. My father deserved a person to care about him, not to lock him up and take him to jail, but a number to call for real help. The advocacy group Faith in Indiana met with lawmakers and delivered a letter calling on them to fully fund proposed legislation that would boost community mental health services and the 988 crisis response hotline. Angela Espada is executive director of the Indiana Catholic Conference. Not a dribble, not seed money to see how it's going, but full and appropriate funding. Faith leaders say that means $130 million. So far, lawmakers have discussed no more than about $30 million. John Tronis, the public health funding issue is getting lots of attention and general support for some sort of significant funding, exactly what that dollar amount changes. But why are we not seeing the same level for this mental health? It had 
a two-year study that, that backs up the need for this. It's costing Indiana billions of dollars in, 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 um, in cost. Why is this two, not two-year study attention? headed by somebody of some prominence, lieutenant governor, yeah. uh, uh, in fact? So uh, it, I think there is widespread support because this is one of those issues where mental illness doesn't recognize R or D or libertarian. There's no party labels. And it's not an issue or a disease that can you bring on yourself by not exercising or smoking. There's, it's not as if you volunteer it's for this. It's also not thing. urban or rural. It's not or so it affects everybody. And I would hazard a guess that every member of the General Assembly's family has been touched in some fashion by mental health. So I think there will, there is an appetite, there's a need here and across the country. It'll happen. Where you get into uh, the, the, the friction is this it's not about mental health per se, it's about the role of government in the delivery of mental health or in, in some cases, the diagnosis at youth levels of mental health. Well, I also want to ask this. I mean, everybody supported the bill, and there's some support for funding, but nowhere near the level that the Behavioral Health Commission said is needed for this system in Indiana. Is this a bit of a, a victim of, there's a lot of big-ticket requests this year, and this one's just not quite the same level? Yeah, I mean... It it seems clear that they're going to get a significant investment, more than they have gotten in the past. I, th I just think this is one of those things, like a lot of things, like the housing fund or, you know, the Public Health Commission, that are we're going to wait until we get that, you know, updated revenue forecast in April, and then in the last few days they'll figure out exactly how much they can put to each thing. But I think at least we're past the debate of needing it. No. And we're, we're just trying Hard to identify how much yeah. to... And, and is that the biggest hurdle is, is we've gotten everybody on board to say, okay, we've got to do this, and it's just about figuring out the dollars and cents? Well, yeah, but you'll get the hurdle when we get the forecast, and then they'll slip in as little as they can get away with doing and say they met the, they met the crisis. I mean, they don't want to do the significant investment that's needed in either mental health or the physical health of Hoosiers, and it's a disgrace. We've had the study. We know the need. We have the money. Spend it. Well, because we haven't spent much as a state, they can call it historic, as they often do for they education do funding. It and it well, this time it actually will be historic, funding, but that yes. doesn't take much. Yeah, That's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly of the Indiana Capital Chronicle. You can find Indiana Week in Review's podcast and episodes at wfyi.org slash iwir or on the PBS video app. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. The opinions expressed are solely those of the panelists. Indiana Week in Review is a WFYI production in association with Indiana's public broadcasting stations.